Thank you, Pastor Doug. In 1930, Elias Garcia Martinez painted a fresco of Jesus with a crown of thorns on the wall of the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in Borgia, Spain. I know I slaughtered that name. I don't twill my tongue. In in and of itself, it was not a remarkable painting. But it became infamous in 2012 when a well-intentioned parishioner in her 80s attempted to restore it from its deteriorated condition. At first, the authorities suspected vandalism. But then they discovered that the alterations had been done by Cecilia Jimenez. Cecilia defended herself by saying that she did her work right out in the open for everyone to see, and even the priests knew what she was doing. Well, thanks to mainstream media and social media, news of the disfigured painting quickly spread around the world. The original fresco was called Behold the Man, but the face looked so much like a monkey that it was soon dubbed Behold the Monkey. But the story has a happy ending. So many tourists flocked to that little town to see this for themselves that the church decided to capitalize on all the attention and start a fundraiser for a retirement home. And the additional tourists were also a boon to the local economy and even Cecilia herself benefited as a year later she put on her own art show with her other artwork. Pastors often feel like Cecilia when it comes to preaching. We study the text, and then we do our best to present it to our contemporary congregations in a way that is engaging and relevant. In reality, it might be better if sometimes we do what my friend suggested to me yesterday, jokingly, Tim, just read the text, do a mic drop, and walk off. As I was preparing this message, I felt like what I was producing was having the same effect as Cecilia's work on Behold the Man. Our text is one of the most glorious texts in the Bible as it describes who God is, what he is, and what our response to that should be. I feel like the author of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, who ended the first verse of that song with the words, what more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. But he must have thought of more to say because he wrote five more stanzas. And so I'll do the same. But my goal is going to be to be a museum tour guide helping you appreciate the beauty of the artist's work. And so let's look at the text itself. I'm going to pick off where Pastor Doug left off in the reading just now. And in this case, I encourage you to just listen. I'm sure you may have your Bibles open, and that's fine. But sit back and listen to this text as if you are observing a painting. 
and listen for the various aspects of it to wash over you and see if you don't agree with me how glorious of a text this is. Thus saith the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall never be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, I am God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He created it to be inhabited. He did not create it empty. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other. A righteous God and a Savior. There is no God beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am the Lord and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out a word in righteousness that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord shall it be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. There are several themes in this text, but I think we can summarize them by simply stating that it presents an inclusive, exclusive salvation. Let's look first at the inclusive salvation. Notice right away at the beginning of our text, instead of portraying the nations of the world as being conquered by God. Instead, they are welcomed by him. 
And this listing of the wealth of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and Sabaeans, men of stature, this is meant to represent the ends of the earth, the great wealth and physical beauty and so on. No matter how powerful, successful, or great they may be, there is coming a day when the nations of the world will recognize that there is only one God. And the way to that God is through his people. And yet there is an aspect of God that is hidden. Isaiah described God in verse 15 as, as one who both hides himself and at the same time is the Savior, the God of Israel. But later in verse 19, he quotes God as saying that he doesn't speak in secret or in a land of darkness. So which is it? Does God hide himself? Or is he open about what he is doing? The answer is yes. As Ray Ortland put it, God hides himself in our commonness. You have to understand the situation here. Isaiah is prophesying to a people that were living at this time 140 years after he died. And they were coming to the end of 70 years in captivity where they had been brought out from their homeland to a foreign country with nothing. They were the captives. They were worse than refugees. They were nothing. They were at the bottom of the barrel. And now God is saying that the wealth of the world is going to come over to you, Israel, and plead with you to let them in. And Israel must have been thinking as they were pondering this text 140 years later, but seeing it being developed in front of their very eyes exactly as Isaiah prophesied it would be, just like Pastor Doug read in that first half of this chapter. And they must have been thinking, this is happening exactly as Isaiah said, and yet how in the world are, are we going to welcome the wealth of the nations? God hides himself in our commonness. Or as Paul expressed it, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. The song that we sang right before the message, Jesus paid it all, as those first words were coming out of our mouths, and as I was thinking about the great task of preaching this awesome text to you this morning, they were so reassuring, because remember what it says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. But there's another way that God is hidden. Martin Luther used to speak of the hidden God versus the revealed God. His counsel was this. If you accept the God who is revealed, the hidden God will be revealed, 
will be given to you at the same time. In other words, if you accept what is clear to you from the gospel, God will give you more understanding of what is unclear. But as we'll see in the next section, God openly proclaims the truth so that no one is without excuse. Even in this section, we see in verse 16 that those who refuse to come to God but instead worship false gods are put to shame, confounded, and and go about in confusion. By way of contrast, God says to his people, you shall never be put to shame or confounded. Those who put God first, who submit to God, find their all in all in him. So salvation is inclusive because it is for the whole world. And yet it is also exclusive. Verse 18 begins much in the same way that verse 14 began with this. Thus says the Lord. And yet the word for comes before it. And so he's building off of this inclusive salvation concept. But God has more to say. He has Two proofs that salvation is exclusively from God. And the first proof is found in verse 18. God shows us who he is through his work of creation. He created the heavens. He is God. Think of the audaciousness to be able to say a statement like that. The creator of the universe. He must be God. But then he formed the earth. He made it. He established it. He didn't create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited by us. He is the Lord. There is no other. God is a God of order, design, power, and beauty. To name a few characteristics that we can see about him through this wonderful universe that he has made. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 1, that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that everybody is without excuse. The second proof that salvation comes, from, comes exclusively from God is found in verses 19 through 21. Not only did God create, but he also spoke. In verse 15, we read about the hiddenness of God. Now, verse 19, we read about the openness of God. He doesn't speak in secret or in a dark land. He doesn't offer empty hope to his people. He speaks the truth. He declares what is right. He is a God that can be trusted. And when he speaks, what he says will happen. It's one thing to take credit for something after it happens. It's quite another thing to declare hundreds of years in advance, in great detail, something that will happen. And then afterwards to stand back and say, see, look, believe, I am the Lord. There is no other. 
And so in verses 20 through 21, God sets up a courtroom. And he challenges the nations of the world to to haul in their idols for a face-off with him. In reality, God has already won the case because by very nature of having to be hauled into the courtroom, the, the idols themselves are proving themselves to be powerless. Whereas God points to the fact that long ago, he simply spoke and things happened. Now, let let me make a side comment here about idols. Because in 21st century modern America, I think we place idols in some uncivilized society. There are gods that people put on their shelf and they make them out of wood and they bow down to these gods and we think, how silly. But idol worship creeps in through our inner desire to be in control. People use idols to get what they want. And in so doing, they think they are in control. This last week, I was meeting with our missionary, Marcus Lehman, who is watching right now, I believe, over in the chapel with his family, and his colleague, Tony Hallaby, from the Seed Company. They are translating Bibles into languages that don't have God's Word. Tony has a couple of young kids, and he brought them to Michigan last week from Chicago so he could take them to the apple orchards. At one of these apple orchards, they had rides for kids. Here is a picture of his son, Lucas. And, and, and Tony said, notice how he is casually waving while keeping the other hand firmly on the wheel and looking ahead as if he is driving that car. He thinks he's in control, even though it's being towed by some vehicle in front of him. And this is how we go through our lives. We put our hands on the wheels of our idols and we steer them wherever we want to go and and we fool ourselves into thinking that we're in control. We're not. There are some times in our lives when we come to the end of the rope and we realize that, but for the most part, we drive around like this. One more side point, if you can bear with me to elaborate a little bit more on this subject of modern-day idols. When I read this verse's description of people caring about their wooden idols, I couldn't help but think about how many of us are caring about these devices in our pockets called smartphones. And we use them to hop onto Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is. And we like to be in control of our world, and so we post our positions and our viewpoints, and we interact with those who disagree with us and sometimes get quite heated in that. And in reality, the social media sucks us in, and we become addicted to it, and it begins to control us and begins to change the way that we think. Modern-day idols. By way of contrast, God invites us to give up control and submit to him. After all, he is the only one who is in control and is exercising it, even when it may look like he's not. 
And that's the situation that the people of Israel found themselves in. They're in captivity. They have nothing. And now they're reading this, that God is in control. And in reality, he's using their captivity to declare his greatness. Can God use the difficulties in your life to increase your faith and demonstrate his greatness to the people around you? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But we have to submit to him. Within 100 years of Isaiah's death, Babylon would be taken, or Judah would be taken into captivity by Babylon, just as God said they would through his prophet Isaiah. And then the events at the beginning of this chapter ex happen exactly as Isaiah prophesied them to happen 140 years later. Another 500 years would go by, and lo and behold, Jesus would be born. He would live, he would die, he would rise again, fulfilling the prophecies Isaiah laid out in Isaiah chapter 53. Today, we're privileged to be in a place to be able to look back through all of those fulfilled prophecies and see even much more than what Isaiah's original audience was able to see. How much more evidence we have to believe in the one true God today. Truly, there is no God beside the Lord, a righteous God and a Savior. So salvation is both inclusive, global, in its invitation, and it's exclusive. It's only through God. And our chapter concludes by bringing these two concepts together in the inclusive, exclusive salvation. Church history lovers will recognize verse 22 as the verse that brought Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous London preacher, to faith in Christ. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Paul took up the end of verse 23 in both Romans 14, 11, and then in the more uh, well-known passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And in that Philippians passage, he says the person of God that we will bow to and swear allegiance to is none other than Jesus himself. But this verse begins with the foundational truth that is sandwiched between this invitation of salvation, the turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, and this prophecy still in the future about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, the prophecy still yet to be Fulfilled, And in between, God says that there is a fact, a truth, by which he has sworn by himself that what he says is always true. It is always accurate and it will always happen exactly as he says it will by my mouth 
I have sworn. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. That's a mic drop right there. We only have two choices. We believe it and we submit to him and worship him, or we don't believe it. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. I submit that we should believe it. God's track record is impeccable. Line up behind him. And so we come to the final two verses, both of which begin with, in the Lord. The first couplet describes the Lord only in the Lord shall it be said of me a righteousness and strength. Don't go looking elsewhere. The only truth that you can depend upon, the only power that can help you is found in the Lord. And the second couplet describes those outside of the Lord. You're in or you're out. They will come to him someday, but instead of the Lord's truth and power helping them, it will only shower them with shame. They will bow to the Lord, Jesus Christ, in that last day, but not in gratitude and worship, but rather in shame and regret and humiliation. The third and final couplet describes those in the Lord. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Brothers and sisters, when he says, in the offspring of Israel, guess what? Paul later writes about Jesus in Galatians as being the true offspring of Israel. And throughout his epistles, he talks about the believers of being in Christ. We are the offspring of Israel. Paul describes it in Romans as like a gardener takes a branch of a tree and grafts it in. We are being brought into the body of, of Israel, the family of God. And in that, we are in the Lord and experience all the blessings and promises that he has promised. That's the invitation for us today. Now, there are some things that are just indescribable. You can only understand them through experience. I think the Grand Canyon is one of those things. I didn't even put a picture up here. A picture doesn't do it justice. All it is is a big long hole in the ground. And that's all. But if you go there, like I did about 10 years ago, it will take your breath away. It's indescribable. You can read about it. You can watch movies about it. But until you go and see it for yourself, I've been at the top. One of my dreams is to go with Isaac through the bottom on a raft and experience it on the other end. Friends, he talks about here at the end, in the Lord, in the Lord. The hiddenness of God, the openness of God, all, if you are outside the Lord, much of what God has to say to you is hidden today. Certainly, certainly you can believe what we've been talking about, his impeccable track record, but until you submit to Jesus as your 
Lord and Savior. You're going to be on the outside looking in. You're going to be listening to a description of the Grand Canyon rather than being there yourself. One of the reasons why I wanted to preach this passage of Scripture was to highlight the number of people who have never heard in this world. One of the things that Nancy Bassett, uh, our missions and children's ministry assistant, did for the mission board in January was to hand out this book. It's a booklet of the 31 frontier people groups. Twelve and a half percent of the world's population is in this book. Less than zero Less than 0.01% of this population is a follower of the Lord. There are groups in this book, for example, the Shaikh people group in Bangladesh. It's too small for you to see that up there. But I'll tell you this, there are 137,345,000 people in the Shaikh people group in Bangladesh. Guess how many are estimated to be followers of Jesus Christ? Go as low as you can go. The number is zero. 137,345,000. There are books like this on the back table at the welcome desk. If you want to begin praying, for the peoples of the world, I invite you to grab a book like this. We have another book. It's our global partner directory. This is a new one as of this month. It has all of our ministry partners in it. I just took a snapshot of a page in the middle. It's got Marcus there. And across the page there is Larry and Helen. Larry and Helen are from South Church. Now they're in Papua New Guinea with the same organization that Mark, Marcus and Rachel are with, Wycliffe. And uh, they are working to help bring the word of God to tribes in Papua New Guinea that have never heard. Marcus and Rachel are working right now to translate the word of God into a tribal language of a tribe in Nigeria. I encourage you to grab one of these and begin praying. This is something that we can and should do. What about going? You know, we got these heroes up here, the Laymans and the, the Krauses. They're the ones that have gone. The others in this book. I'm talking to someone here today. Maybe they're in elementary school. Maybe they're over there in the chapel watching this right now. Maybe I'm talking to a senior hire, watching from home, sitting on their couch or on the chair in the bedroom. I'm talking to a college student in Cutting Edge, just came off of their retreat this last weekend. I'm talking to an adult, like someone like Larry and Helen, who were in their careers and, and left it all behind to go into missions. Someone here, maybe today, God is beginning to call you. We think, well, that's not me. Hey, guess what? The nations are coming to us. We support two missionaries here who are in East Lansing. Emily Veltry and Jessica Hall working with international students at MSU. 
I'm sure they would give you names that you could begin praying for or you could begin, like in my neighborhood, to go across the street to the Pakistani family or down the street to the Iraqi family or down the block to the Asian families. And then to send. Pray, go, send. South Church, a lot of these missionaries are from South Church, sent out from South Church, like Shelley Nomura that we saw in the video this morning and Mark Vanderwerf. We need to continue to support them. One of the things I encourage you to do this missionary, this Christmas season that's beginning now, is to support your missionaries by giving them an extra gift for Christmas. We're not doing a conference project this year. This year, our missionaries have gone through a lot with COVID. Some of them had great financial needs. Wouldn't it be awesome to bless them with the generosity from our check, checkbooks here at South? Anything that comes in in the month of October, the month of November, and the month of December marked for missions will go to that missionary Christmas offering. This is the inclusive, exclusive salvation. It's for the world, but it's only through Jesus Christ. Will you please bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to share your word. Lord, I pray that it would have its desired effect of encouraging us to be prayer warriors, to be goers, and to be senders. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.